welcome to Professor Dave Debates. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have a very fascinating episode because we're going to be talking about consciousness. It's a mysterious thing. What is consciousness and how does it happen? Uh, we've tried to answer this question uh, throughout the millennia, usually with religion and philosophy, but now science is having a go at it. And so today we are going to be talking to a scientist that studies exactly this. We have on the show Joel Froelich, and he has a PhD in neuroscience uh, from UCLA where he studied biomarkers of neurodevelopment developmental disorders, and now he's doing postdoctoral research, uh, again on consciousness, uh, in the laboratory of Martin Monti, also at UCLA. And so this is what Joel does. He, he studies consciousness, and he's trying to, he's one of many scientists trying to figure out exactly what it is and how it happens. Uh, in addition to his research, he's also the co-editor-in-chief of the science communication website Knowing Neurons, and his writing has appeared in such publications as The Atlantic, Psychology Today, uh, Nautilus, a bunch of places. Um, so if you want to know more about what he's doing with science communication, check out joelfrolich.com. So that's J-O-E-L, and then his last name is F-R-O-H-L-I-C-H.com. Or you can follow him on Twitter at joel underscore Froelich. So he's doing science, he's doing communication. So obviously we had a ton to talk about, and I really learned a lot because this is something I've thought about and I have my own opinions about, but I didn't know necessarily about precisely what kind of research is going on in this field and what we are unearthing, what we are learning in an empirical way about what consciousness is and what some of the theories are uh, that try to explain it. So uh, let's get right into this. This is me talking to Joel about what is consciousness? Right. Well, we're up to all sorts of things. I mean, we have articles about science. We explain basic concepts. And we have a new thing right now called neuroprimers. So we take really basic neuroscience concepts. We have one for attention. We have one for glia, the cells that actually outnumber neurons in the brain. And we try to just explain these in a you know very straightforward manner to our readers. We're still doing book reviews. So when there's a great new um, non nonfiction neuroscience book out there. We, we often write a review of it. Um, we're still trying to get more into YouTube, but that's, you know, taken a while to reach critical mass. As I know yeah. all too well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. You're, you know, taking all things brain and just kind of breaking them down. Definitely really, really important for, for people to know and understand. Uh, I mean, obviously what we're going to be talking about today is super fascinating to me and hopefully to the listeners. Um, and definitely something you have a lot to say about. So I, let, let's just jump into that. Sure. I want to talk about consciousness. It's this really perplexing thing. You know, we, the, the, the great thinkers have been pondering this for, uh, throughout the ages. What the heck is consciousness? Why, why are we conscious? What is that? Where does it happen? How does it happen? Um, why is it important to understand? So let's just go right from the top. What is consciousness? Let's just kind of break it down in a simple way uh, uh, right off the bat here. Sure. So it's very important to have a definition of consciousness that we agree on. I mean, believe it or not, this is a huge impediment towards consciousness research. A lot of people have their own definition of consciousness, and they talk past each other. Some people even seem to deny it as a concept altogether. So, you know, one thing that a lot of people think of when they think of consciousness is self-awareness, and that's not what I mean. Um, self-awareness, you know, this is where you have some animals, uh, you make you might make a mark on the head of the animal and they're in front of a mirror. And you know, some animals, they'll recognize that that mark is actually on their body, so they're self-aware. You know, if you do this to great apes, they actually, they try to touch the mark on their head. If you do this to other animals, uh, they may not recognize it. They don't have a you know, sense of self. That's not what I'm talking about. So you can have no self-awareness and still have consciousness. My definition of consciousness is a system is conscious if it's like something to be that system. So this idea goes back to the philosopher um, Thomas Nagel, and he wrote this essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? So a bat's a great example because bats sample their world using a sensory modality that we don't have. So bats have echolocation. They give these ultrasonic pulses of sound, sound that we would not be able to hear, and they listen for the echo, and they build an image of their world this way. Now, of course, uh, us humans, we have hearing, but you know we don't perceive motion or, or shape using hearing. So what it would be like to be a bat is very puzzling. You know, would it be more to have echolocation? Would it be more like hearing? Would it be more like vision? 
and it's you a know, subjective reality yes, we just have no yes. access to exactly exactly and you know in all likelihood it's you know perhaps like something completely different that we can't even imagine mm-hmm. but the important thing is as long as it's like something to be a bat as long as a bat has some kind of first person experience mm-hmm. then the bat is conscious and experiential reality yes so 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 under this model bats are conscious uh yes if if we assume that it's like something to be a bat yes okay. and I mean, in all likelihood, I would say all ma- all mammals are conscious, but um, because consciousness is a subjective phenomenon, it's very hard to know for sure, and that's something we can talk about later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, on the other hand, if a magician were to wave a magic wand and transform you into a bat, and then it were just like nothing to be that bat, you know, it was just like uh, the world vanishes into oblivion, and there's there's darkness and you, there's as, nothing, then the, then the bat's not conscious. As it would be if you were turned into, say, a rock. Yes. Okay. Right. I mean, a rock, that's one thing we can, you know, pretty safely say that it's, it's not conscious. Right. Okay. So where now, it, it seems to me that there are, we, we then have to decide if we're going to talk about what consciousness is, then we're going to have to talk about like the nature of it. Is it just an emergent property of matter or is there some dualism going on? Like a a lot of people that are religious would say that there is a soul and consciousness is the result of having a soul and and they will evoke a, a God and things like that. And so what can we say about the, you know, is there any evidence for one of these views over another, or can we expand on these two in any way? Right, so probably first we should define dualism. So there's actually different kinds of dualism as well, which makes this confusing, but when most people talk about dualism, they mean substance dualism. This is the idea that the mind and the body are entirely different substances. And of course, uh, throughout most of human history, mean, this has been the, the dominant view. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the, the mind is not the brain. The uh, mind yeah, yeah. is a different yeah, non-matter-based yeah, yeah. Thing. Exactly. I mean, if you want to see where you stand on this question, ask yourself, are you your brain? And that probably tells you right there. You know, if you say that you are your brain, you're probably not a substance dualist. If you um, if you say that you're not your brain, then you're you're probably you probably are a substance dualist. OK, mm-hmm. so the problem with substance dualism is, you know, if we lesion the brain and we take away all these different cognitive functions, there there's not. A lot of room left for this the spirit or this ghost in the machine so you know i can lesion your broca's area which is a part of cortex that's responsible for speech production you won't be able to speak anymore so it's hard to imagine that you have some spirit inside you that you know still has language if if you're not talking Uh, another place where this concept breaks down is split brain patients this might take a little bit of time to set up but you know back in the 70s they did a lot of operations on people with intractable epilepsy. So this means they're having these huge convulsions, seizures multiple times a day. Really not a fun way to live. So the only solution for some of these people was to operate on their brains and actually split, um, split their brains by cutting the nerve fibers, the corpus callosum that connects the two cerebral hemispheres, mm-hmm. the left hemisphere and the so right right hemisphere. down the middle, just kind of clip yes. it right through. It, yes, exactly. So um, these people, they, they actually seem quite normal. Um, upon first inspection but there are clever ways that you can feed information to one hemisphere or the other and discover that they actually have different streams of consciousness and we would know this because they would answer questions differently depending on whether it was the left hemisphere or the right hemisphere okay and actually in this video that you and I made a year ago we talk about the famous neurologist V.S. Ramachandran he had this patient who was a split brain patient and he asks the patient do you believe in God now language has language is in the left hemisphere okay the right hemisphere can understand some language but not very well and it also it can't talk so um the the left hemisphere verbally answers no and the right hemisphere just you know point i think he had like a card that said yes and another card that said no and uh the the right hemisphere pointed to yes so you can have two different uh two different beliefs in in one brain as well so you know if you think that there's like one immortal soul this is also very hard to reconcile with with what we know about the brain. Right, because if that were a non-physical construct, how could it be influenced by manipulating the physical body, yes. which is the brain is a part of? Okay, so that, that's very interesting to, yeah, yes, to exactly. cite actual empirical evidence that seems to be contrary to the idea of a soul. It's quite fascinating. Right. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we can have, you know, some definitions of a soul that would be very unconventional. Like you might say, 
your soul is the information in your brain. And then if you were to scan your brain with nanometer resolution, you know, get every synapse, every neurotransmitter receptor, put all of that information on a hard drive, which would need to be an enormous hard drive, right? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, boot that up sometime in the future and run a simulation of your brain. Simulate your you know, consciousness. It, now, yeah. this is, you know, this really gets deep, you know, is it still you if you wake up in this you know, in the simulation, in matrix or whatever. but yeah. you, you know, you, you could actually, you know, put together an argument that, well, the information is your soul. And, you know, if you save that information somewhere, then your mind still exists. And that, and then that, that is the afterlife, so to speak. Uh, yes. So there's these guys, right? Kurzweil and some of these guys, they, they actually genuinely believe this and that, and, and not only that it is possible that we will do it. Right. 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 I think Kurzweil is the most uh, adamant of these people. Mm -hmm. um, he's trying to stay alive with his little his vitamins and his, yeah. he's like hanging on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The singularity. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, th th there's a spectrum of um, of speculations and predictions here. Many people think that this is possible in principle, which is very different from possible in practice, which is also very different from it's going to happen this century, right? Right. But uh, yeah, in in principle, I, I think that is possible. Okay. Now, so so uh, on the flip side here, if we are considering what we would call it, what physicalism or monism? Yes. Um, if we are going to consider consciousness to be an emergent property of matter, and that we can explain consciousness strictly by uh, understanding the brain intimately, how does that work? Where is current research with that? Are we able to do so to some degree? How far are we from being able to explain consciousness in a rigidly physical and mechanistic way? Right. So there's a theory that I'm very biased towards. I'll just put that out at the front. Mm -hmm. It's called Integrated Information Theory, or IIT. And this theory was developed by an Italian neuroscientist, Giulio Tononi, who is now working at University of Wisconsin. And it's based on work he did earlier with his mentor, uh, Gerald Edelman. So what IIT basically says is that Consciousness is information that's integrated in the brain. And that may take a little bit of time to, to break down. First, we need to define information. So integrated information is actually a very specific concept. So I think we should start talking about information more broadly. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, to many of your listeners, information may sound like just this nebulous concept, not something that could be quantified. But believe it or not, a lot of scientists, especially physicists, they now talk about information as just sort of a fundamental quantity, just like mass or charge. Well, it seems um, quantifiable. We're talking about yes. neur neuronal transmission, right? That is a quantifiable thing, uh, right? Yes, yes. I mean, especially if you um, digitize it, break it down into bits, you know, mm -hmm. firing, not firing. Firing, not firing. Also, the number of discrete connections yes. is, is quantifiable. Yes. So just the most broad definition of, of information is the one that uh, Clyde Shannon developed. So Clyde Shannon, he was the founder of information theory. Uh, he was actually a contemporary of Alan Turing, and he defined information as a reduction in uncertainty. So, for example, if you flip a coin um, and it comes up heads, well, there's two possible states. There's heads and there's tails. So if it comes up heads, you know that it's not tails. So it reduces some uncertainty, and we say that that's one bit of information. Got now it. say you roll a die and there's six possible states if it's a six-sided die, right? And say it comes up two. So there's five states that you've ruled out. That's more information than the coin flip. And then if we're, say we're playing hangman, okay, and you have 26 letters in the English alphabet and you have to guess some letters. And another thing is this definition of information, it weighs each state by its probability. Okay, so not all states are weighed equally. If I guess E and I get that right, well, E is the most common letter in the English language. It mm -hmm. actually doesn't reduce that much uncertainty because, you know, a very large proportion of, of words in the English language have E in it. But say I guess X and mm -hmm. I get it right. Very few words in English have X in it. So that's very informative. It contains more information. Uh, so that's a good place to start is Shannon information. Um, integrated information is a little bit different. So... Uh, Tononi often likes to call this um, a difference that makes a difference from the intrinsic perspective of the system itself. So imagine you have a book, okay? Imagine you just scratch out one word in the book. Um, does this change the information in the book? You know, you, you've removed one word, but the other words don't change, right? Mm -hmm. It's not as if, you know, if it's Harry Potter, I scratch out the word Harry Potter, like one instance of it. It's not like right. the other, the ink starts to shift and like the it's, other words turn it's into negligible. To new it's words. a negligible impact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, of course, to, if we start talking about semantics, which is actually a different story, none of this touches semantics at all. 
Um, the meaning that the reader perceives in the book might change because everything depends on context, right? You remove one word, maybe the next word is interpreted differently. But from the intrinsic perspective of the system itself, you haven't changed these other words. In other words, there's not these causal links between words. They're not, you know, constantly um, affecting each other. So a book is not conscious. We're pretty damn sure. Mm -hmm. um, another way to think about integrated information is that it's the information of the system that's above and beyond the sum of the information of each part in the system. Okay, so now I think we should start talking about examples with the brain. Okay. Well, one thing I really like about IIT is it explains this long-standing mystery of why this part of the brain called the cerebellum is not involved in consciousness. So, uh, many, what part is that? Is yeah. that that's the outermost part, or no? uh, so the largest outermost part is the cerebral, cerebral cortex, cortex, and yeah. then you have the cerebellum, which is right in the back of the brain. It's this very compact, tightly folded structure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, if you just have a model brain, you can see it really easily. It actually um, it has the majority of the neurons in the brain, which most people don't realize. It doesn't contain most of the brain's volume, but because one, it's folded so tightly, and two, that these neurons tend to be particularly small, it contains more neurons than the rest of the brain put together. So how is it that you can actually remove most of the neurons in the brain and not affect consciousness? So there are people who are in fact born without a cerebellum. Wow. They have pretty bad motor deficits. So I should say this is really important for motor coordination, for balance. Okay. But so, they have an intact identity. Uh, yes, exactly. So your experience of the world doesn't really change if you lesion the cerebellum. By contrast, if you lesion the cerebral cortex, you know, you might stop sensing movement, you might stop sensing color, you might even lose your ability to plan ahead or, you know, your, your sense of self, like you say. So, you know, this has puzzled neuroscientists for a long time. IIT has actually a very straightforward explanation. Uh, and of course, this lies in integrated information. So if you look at the cerebral cortex, you have a mixture of long range and short range connections. Okay. And in the cerebellum, you have a very different wiring plan. Uh, you have these linear feed-forward circuits. So that means, you know, one neuron feeds information to the next one, and that one feeds information to the next one. But there's not a whole lot of crosstalk. There's not a whole lot of feedback. Okay, so now imagine I take a micropipette, and, you know, I stick it in a cortical neuron in the cerebral cortex, and I inject some current, and it starts spiking. It starts firing nerve impulses, right? So those nerve impulses will actually affect neurons in all different other parts of cortex. You know, a lot of the nearest neighbors are affected, but also there are long range projections, other cortical regions. And so these neurons start firing as well. Now the cerebellum, of course, it has output to other parts of the brain, but you know, a lot of the circuits are highly localized. So if I were to stimulate a cerebellar neuron in the same manner, you know, it might just excite the, the next neuron in this chain. You know, it'd be like, this is oversimplified, but it's, you know, like A um, affects B, B affects C, C affects D, but D doesn't mm -hmm, affect mm -hmm. C, C doesn't affect B. So it's about connectivity. It's about uh, it's about a signal propagating at an exponential rate due to each next neuron being connected to many more neurons yes. as opposed to sort of a linear chain. Yes. Okay, so, so consciousness emerges because of the complexity of these connections? Uh, yes, complexity is a very big part of it. Um, if we go back to uh, one of the definitions of integrated information, again, it's the fact that um, the system contains, the information of the whole system is larger than the, the sum of the parts. And that's one definition of emergence. The, the whole, the whole mm -hmm. is greater than the sum of the parts, okay? Right. Um, I, I just want to give one more example of why IIT has such good explanatory power. So um, the number of possible states in the brain is also highly important. So again, Tononi's information is a little different from Shannon's information, but it's still true that you know the more possible brain states you have, the more informative each state is. So one thing that IIT explains is why you lose consciousness during an epileptic seizure. Okay, so... Uh, during an epileptic seizure, uh, if you record EEG, this is a technique where you put these electrodes on the scalp, so they measure electrical brain activity completely non-invasively, and they're actually recording the, the spatial average of hundreds of millions of neurons, okay? During an epileptic seizure, you're going to see these really large amplitude, slow brain waves, okay? Very, very large. And you might, if you don't know anything about EEG, what's a person's intuition? They might say, oh my God, this person's like hyper-conscious because they have these huge brain waves. But mm -hmm. in reality, it's the opposite. If you look at someone who's in a deep sleep, if you look at someone who's under anesthesia, in a coma, they have these very large, high-amplitude brain waves. When you're awake, when you're attentive, your brain waves, they become a lot smaller, okay? 
Now, the reason for this is, again, so EEG, we're taking a spatial average over a vast, vast sum of, of neural tissue, right? So when you have these very large brain waves, it's because all these neurons, it's as if they're either firing or they're not firing, okay? They're in agreement or, um, you know, just in one of two states. That's a very simplified model, but you get the picture, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you just have two states, remember the coin flip, you know? Um, the coin flip isn't very informative because it only rules out the other state. Whereas if you have this rich repertoire of many possible brain states, then each state is highly informative because it rules out all those other states that could have been. Okay. I think I follow. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of what kind of research is done in this field? Uh, right. So yeah, my lab actually studies disorders of consciousness. Uh, so my boss is uh, Dr. Martin Monti at UCLA. I'm a postdoc in his lab. I should add, I've uh, I did my PhD in neuroscience at UCLA, and I um, finished recently, and I was doing something different, neurodevelopmental disorders. So I've actually only been uh, working in a consciousness lab for six months. So I'm by no means a world expert, but, you know, I, I can tell you a lot about it. And I, I love think that name, by the way, Consciousness yeah. Lab. Conscious, yeah, it Consciousness like, Lab. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. a, a booth at Coachella or something. Well, you know, if I go outside of academia and I tell people here in L.A. what I'm doing, they're probably going to think it's, you know, some kind of BS. Like, um, you yeah. know, like, what is this, like Scientology or something? I wouldn't even blame them if that were right. their, their But then you start reaction, talking right? for six seconds and it's like, yeah. oh, no, that's, that's science. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, exactly. So. So, yeah, so what do you guys do? Yeah, yeah so I, I should say that, um, you know, our lab's claim to fame, I can't take any credit for this because this was long before I was involved, but um, uh, Martin and his group had this 2010 New England Journal of Medicine paper where they basically demonstrate something that works like a consciousness detector. So before I explain what it is, I think I should back up a step and set up the motivation. So disorders of consciousness, these include things like a coma, minimally conscious state, vegetative state. So, you know, most people know what a coma is. You have a stroke or a traumatic brain injury and your responsiveness and awareness is diminished as a result. And there are many different prognoses one can have. You know, some people, they end up walking and talking, but before they get there, they may be in a minimally conscious state where they can respond to some simple commands. They can move their finger. They can make some vocalizations to communicate, but they're not fully there. Hence the name minimally conscious state. Mm -hmm. um, a worse prognosis would be a vegetative state. So in a vegetative state, um, it's different from a coma because you have sleep and wake cycles. The eyes might be open. You might have some reflexive movements, but there's no evidence of consciousness. Okay, there's no purposeful behavior. So right. um, Terry Shiva would be the most famous example of a vegetative state. Now, the misdiagnosis rate for disorders of consciousness is very high. Okay, it's something like 40%. So in 40% of cases, um, the person is more there than we thought they were, or perhaps less there, but that would seem very strange. Um, so the motivation is very high to build something like a consciousness detector. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess another example of uh, where this would be useful is actually general anesthesia. So it's very frightening to think about, but a lot of people go under and they say that they remember everything that happened. Right. Yeah. yeah. I've heard of this. Yeah. So we really want to know if someone's conscious or not. Mm -hmm. And at first this just seems hopeless because... Well, um, it's a inherently subjective phenomenon. So, you know, how can you know if you're conscious without being that person? Yeah. But there are some tricks. So uh, Marin and his group, they developed this very clever paradigm where you take some people who are in a coma or vegetative state and you put them in an fMRI machine. So um, for those who don't know, this is a very powerful magnet. You can put a person inside. You can image the human body. And you can also view metabolic brain activity. You basically, you're seeing which parts of the brain use more oxygen, okay? And so you put the person in an fMRI scanner and you ask them some questions. Now, obviously, most of these people are totally out. They don't, they're not aware of anything. They don't know that they're in an MRI scanner. They don't know that you're asking mm -hmm. them anything. They're not receiving stimuli. Exactly. Well, the stimuli, you know, it or might... they're falling on deaf, yeah, 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 on yeah, deaf yeah. brain, might, so to speak. It might hit the first two synapses, and then, right. you know, when it gets to the cortex, there's, there's yeah. no one home. But, um, but for a small but substantial proportion of these people, they actually, um, they're awake inside, and they understand. And so you might ask them, uh, is your name Dave? If yes, please imagine that you're playing tennis. If no, please imagine that you're walking through all the rooms of your house. And those two activities, they have very different neural signatures in the fMRI machine. Wow. So, you, yeah, you, you look at the, the fMRI and you actually see if the person's imagining playing tennis, imagining walking through all the rooms of their house, or they're just not thinking anything. 
because okay. one is one one type of brain activity is like localized in a certain area or the other one is diffuse or they're both diffuse um you know there are actually very few cognitive activities that are completely localized to to one region but they have different patterns okay mm -hmm. and so you look at these patterns of activity uh you know for example if you're walking through all the rooms of your house um you know you're, that's more kind of like an exploratory behavior than playing tennis where sure you're moving but you're not it's not really an exploratory activity mm -hmm. so you look at the fmri and you can actually see if the person understands and you would ask them you know several questions uh, mostly questions you already know the answer to so that you can validate that they really understood you know, mm -hmm. if they get their date of birth wrong, then, you know, something's not right here. But yeah, so a sub, and this has been replicated that a substantial, small but substantial proportion of people, they're, um, they're able to understand and they're, they're awake, even though they're, you know, they have no overt behavior. That's, that's, that's bananas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's, we're, we're taking the only mm -hmm. tool we have, right? If they're not responsive, they cannot move or respond in any way. But if there's brain activity that they can, they can direct that brain activity and we can, and we can interpret it and yes. gain useful information. So yes. are, are we using this? Is this something like where somebody's in a coma or a vegetative state and we need to know, are we going to pull the plug? Are we going to do this? What are we going to do? And we can use this and check if they're in there or not. Right. Right. Do yeah. We, so do I we do this. Yeah. So I had a feeling you were going to ask me that mm -hmm. i mean the answer is right now no so um, why not the, we should be doing this it, yeah yeah i mean that's that's the that's the end game right yeah. and in the future it's possible uh the problem is it's really impossible to validate this technique you know if we're really rigorous scientists um we would want to validate this by having someone who wakes up from the coma and then says yeah I, I, I remember you. i remember um answering these questions for you and you know you check their answers against what they said at the time and all those things right. are correct without prompting them they say i heard that yes, and i imagined yes. the tennis yes yes or whatever you, it is. yes exactly you yeah. need to validate it in that manner otherwise as likely as it seems that our interpretation is correct there's you know some room for doubt there are skeptics who say this could be some kind of unconscious semantic processing um you know that that seems a little hard to buy but i guess if, if it's a really simple question like your name well maybe it could be you know pre-conscious semantic mm -hmm, processing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so are, are other people trying to reproduce these kinds of studies or or have we done any yeah. of this work where people come out of the vegetative state have we been able to gain any of this data or oh right so yeah pe people have replicated this paradigm actually i think there was um a paper very recently that was quite frightening they do something similar with people who are under general anesthesia and they found i don't think it was a lot of people but you know maybe i want to say like four people out of a sample of uh, i don't want to i don't remember the numbers so i don't want to get something wrong but um a few people they're they're under general anesthesia and they're still aware they're still able to answer these questions so mm -hmm. um that's that's quite frightening um yeah as far as waking people up um of course people do just naturally uh progress out of these states uh, sometimes they don't sometimes they do and we would like to facilitate their recovery from a coma vegetative state. And one thing we're doing in our lab, which is a new project, um, I'm not too heavily involved in it, but it's called LifeUp. So that's low intensity focused ultrasound pulsation. So you take ultrasound, this is um, sound at a high frequency that humans can't hear. And you actually have an acoustic lens. So you focus the sound into a beam of acoustic energy and you stimulate the thalamus, this walnut sized brain area, which is often called the gateway to consciousness because um, all sensory information except for smell has to pass through the thalamus before it reaches the cerebral cortex. Mm -hmm. And if you stimulate the thalamus with this ultrasound, you know, it sounds crazy. If you told me about this before, I think ah, that, that would never work. It's just, you know, it's just ultrasound. It, the frightening yeah. thing is we actually don't really know exactly what the ultrasound does to stimulate the neural tissue, but it does something. And it's there's mechanical energy. Y yes, yes, exactly. So it yeah. seems that there's some mechanical energy that just um, forces open or closed certain ion channels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, this is very preliminary at the moment, but there is some evidence to suggest that perhaps this um, facilitates the waking up of certain patients. Now, I don't want anybody to imagine a Hollywood-esque scenario where the person just, you know, like opens their eyes and bolts off the hospital bed because that never happens. But um, it may actually speed up their recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, we also need to just understand the basic properties of this kind of stimulation. So I've been a volunteer a couple of times to receive this ultrasound and um, while a grad student in my lab recorded EEG and, you know, tried to figure out, you know, what was the effect of... So you've, you've, heard, you've felt this? Yeah. You've had, yep. Is there a physical sensation? Not for me, no. Wow. <laughs> um, I think some other people in our lab, they've done it and they've said that it changes their concentration, but that was just a task they decided mm -hmm. to do on their own. There was no explicit task given to them as 
research participants. It'd be funny so, if they were like, I taste cinnamon or something. Like uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that 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 wouldn't happen. But so so it's not so directed, but it's just kind of like a gent a gentle like, hey buddy, if you're in a coma, like why don't you why don't you? Yeah, wake yeah, up yeah. I, I mean, a, a really uh, funny way of describing it is like massaging the thalamus. Massaging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I can also talk about my own project in the lab that I'm okay. doing. So. Uh, I think this ties in nicely with what I was talking about with IIT. So I studied neurodevelopmental disorders during my dissertation, and there's one disorder that I studied called Angelman syndrome. So children of Angelman syndrome, they have a mutation of this gene UB3A, which affects their brain development profoundly. Okay, so these kids, um, 80% of them have seizures, and you know they all have this very profound delayed development such that uh, many of them, they're minimally verbal. They may only develop a vocabulary of 50 words, okay? Um, but the really interesting thing about Angelman syndrome is that if you look at their EEG, even while they're awake, uh, they have this EEG that looks like, you know, the EEG you'd see um, during a coma, during deep sleep, during an epileptic seizure. I mentioned that most of them have epilepsy, but I'm only talking about the EEG when they're not seizing, okay? And these kids, they have purposeful behaviors that demonstrate consciousness, okay? Mm -hmm. And actually, they, they have a really interesting phenotype. They're really happy kids in general. They like to smile and laugh a lot, okay? So we have every reason to believe that they're awake, that they're there, but they have this EG that looks like they're, they're out, and it's really strange. So I've taken some of this EG data, and right now I'm comparing it to their sleep EG because I have recordings from uh, wakefulness and sleep. And we're trying to find which measures best discriminate wakefulness from sleep. And this is kind of the perfect context in which to, you know, help refine our consciousness detector, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, if we just use something, you know, really simple like EEG amplitude, we're going to get this problem wrong. Because, you know, here we have this case of kids that they have this EEG that if you just looked at it qualitatively, you know, if you looked at the, the analog trace with your eye, you'd say... Yeah, that person looks like they're out, but they're not. They're just they're the perfect counterexample. They're yes. out and about. And yes. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think that this falsifies the theories that I've discussed, but it challenges them. And it, it's actually, as I say, it's a perfect opportunity to, you know, refine our methods of um, describing biomarkers of consciousness. What are, what are some challenging theories? You, you, you mentioned to me in the past something like uh, there's global workspace, there's panpsychism, there's yes. some other ones yes. that maybe are worth talking about. Yeah, there's a lot of ideas floating out there. So mm -hmm. global workspace theory, I'm going to say up front that I'm not going to do it justice. It's not one that I've um, read up on that much. Um, it, it's, an, it's an older theory. And, you know, as far as I can tell, it's basically just saying, yeah, consciousness is this phenomenon that takes place across a distributed brain network, which mm -hmm. at this point, almost everyone knows, you know, if it makes more specific predictions, and I'm sorry, you know, I, I, I don't know about them, you're gonna have global workspace theorists writing into you and say, mm -hmm. don't have Joel on your podcast again. <laughs> but to me, to me, it just states things that are obvious, like we know that consciousness occurs over a distributed brain network. Um, you know, the only person who's going to be surprised by this is Rene Descartes. So, you know, he was this famous mm -hmm. philosopher and mathematician. I think, therefore, I am this guy. And he, for some reason, he thought that consciousness resided in the pineal gland. So this is this endocrine uh, gland in the brain that secretes melatonin, helps you sleep at night. Okay. And he was just convinced that, you know, your, like your soul is just chilling there in the, the pineal gland. Why? Just I, I, I don't know. The gateway of sleep or, you know, the, the, the doorway I can't tell to... You. Yeah, consciousness. I, I guess. I guess. I don't really know. Uh -huh. Yeah, but um, yeah, that's um, that's clearly been falsified, and I, I don't think there's anybody who takes that seriously right. anymore. At least not in the scientific right. community. Had he yeah. access to an fMRI, then maybe he wouldn't have thought that, right? <laughs> but right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I guess a related idea to global workspace theory is this description of consciousness as fame in the brain. I think that might be Daniel Dennett who said that, although I might be getting that wrong. But that idea is that you know. Um, there's a lot of information in your brain, obviously, but some information gets shared across the whole network, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it'd be like the, the latest news story. If there's some, you know, someone's famous and something happens to them, you know, everyone finds out really quickly and the information is just everywhere. Whereas there's other information, but it's only of interest to this community, that community, you know, the local weather in your grandma's town that doesn't get spread, you know, everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's kind of like fame, so to speak, in the brain, that's the information your consciousness of. It's, you know... Your immediate physical surroundings, yeah, yeah. sensory input. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So what would be an example of the grandma's town thing? The grandma's town thing? Yeah, so, you know, subcortically, that is beneath the cerebral cortex, there are a lot of circuits that um, do much more localized processing. 
And, you know, actually something that's interesting is that it can in some cases be the same information, but just processed in a different way. Mm -hmm. So a great example of this is blindsight. So uh, um, what this is, is you have somebody who their eyes are healthy, but they've had um, either a stroke or a lesion that's affected their visual cortex, a part of the cerebral cortex that processes vision, and they no longer have any conscious experience of vision. Okay. Wow. But... But you take them down a corridor with some crates and some barrels. They still seem able to walk around them. You put them in front of a computer monitor. You ask them to guess, you know, which shapes are on the monitor and where. And at first they might say something like, why are you asking me this? I don't know. And then you say, well, you know, just, just humor us. Just give us a guess. And they actually, they guess better than chance. They don't get it completely right, but they guess better than chance. So how can this be? You know, they're seeing, but they don't have any vision. And there's a part of the brain called the superior colliculus. It's part of the mesencephalon or the midbrain. And it's part of this evolutionarily much older uh, visual pathway, okay? So I mentioned the thalamus at one point. So, you know, vision starts when a photon hits your retina mm -hmm. and it gets transduced into an electrical impulse. And some of those uh, nerve fibers, they go to your thalamus, okay? And from the thalamus to the cortex, but others of those go to the midbrain. And then the superior colloquialis, um, there's this very localized processing, okay? But it's not fame in the sense that it's not being communicated broadly across, you know, this big distributed Is it almost network. like a vestigial thing? Like it's something that we used in the past and uh, we just didn't really lose it. We just evolved a new or better way I, to process visual information. No, I, I think it still does some important things. Okay. Uh, for example, I think it's important visual saccades. So a saccade is when you dart your eyes from one place to another. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is unconscious, you know, if something just like... Uh, you know, like if a car just like crashed through this wall right it's now, reflexive. you know, I would like, you know, I'd have this reflexive saccade. Yeah. Uh, you know, someone in vegetative state might have a saccade, for mm -hmm. example. That doesn't mean that they're conscious. I think the superior colliculus is largely involved in driving this. But mm -hmm. um, an interesting implication of this, I could be wrong. I think this is also V.S. Ramachandran who said this. He was saying, yeah, you know, if you look at um, this older visual pathway, it's the visual pathway that, you know, animals like reptiles have because they have this very underdeveloped, under-evolved, perhaps I should say, forebrain, right? Um, they're doing a lot of um, their computational processing in the midbrain. And, you know, if it's a superior colliculus doing most of the work in these animals, maybe they're not conscious. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want anybody to go out and, like, you know, torture an alligator because I said that. But, uh, right. it, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about. It's very interesting. I mean, one thing I did want to ask you, and I, I want to get back to what we were talking about. I don't want to take too long a tangent, but where is that line? What is conscious and what's not in terms of yes. the, the animal species? Yes, that's actually, that's the perfect transition in panpsychism. Oh, great. Okay. Right. Perfect. So, actually, you know, talk about panpsychism. I think I should introduce this concept of the hard problem and the easy problem. Okay. So, David Chalmers, he's this Australian philosopher who's extremely influential in philosophy of mind. And he came up with this very important distinction of the hard problem and the easy problem. So the easy problem of consciousness is, you know, it's not easy in a trivial sense. It takes a lot of work, but it's, you know, what we can tackle scientifically. So obviously we can do a lot of experiments to, you know, correlate certain um, functions related to consciousness, such as attention, perception, awareness, the sense of self. We can correlate these with different brain states, you know, electrical brain activity. In regions even. Yes, yes, in brain regions. Okay, um, so that's easy in the sense that it's doable. We're just getting data. Yes, it's just here's some data mm -hmm. we got. Yes, yes, right. yes, exactly. The hard problem is different. The hard problem is asking, okay, you know, the brain is doing all this computational processing, but why does it feel like something from a first-person perspective to mm -hmm. be a brain, right? You know, why doesn't that processing just happen in the well, dark? You know, why like does subjective reality yeah, exists. Yeah, I mean, you know, your your smartphone is doing a lot of computation, uh, but we, we rarely think about what it's like to be a smartphone. You know, we presume mm -hmm. it's like nothing, which mm -hmm. may be the case. We don't mm -hmm. know. But uh, so this is the hard problem. And the hard problem is a little frightening because... Uh, you know, it's not obvious how we solve it. Um, you know, we can do all the experiments in the world and not necessarily make any progress on the hard problem. I think that's why some yeah. people still cling to dualism. Exactly. Yeah. Well, a lot of people also just throw up their hands and say, you can't study consciousness scientifically and, you know, we'll never have a solution to the hard mm -hmm. problem. Well, yeah, which I mean, obviously you can study consciousness scientifically, but it doesn't guarantee a solution to the hard problem. I mean, if you take something just like a really, really um, dissociative psychedelic experience, you know what I mean? And then you try to frame that scientifically, 
sometimes you catch yourself being like, what if it really is just this whole other thing that just has nothing to sure. do with any of this? You know? Sure. Well, you, you can study it on yourself for sure because yeah. you have access to your own mental states. Right. Um, one reason some people say you can't study consciousness scientifically is because, you know, like Dave, I don't even know for sure that you're conscious, you know, like right. it could you be, exist, you know, yeah. it, it could be that I'm talking to you, you know, you, you seem like you're conscious, like I am, you know, you behave like me, you know, your, your brain is like my brain, mm-hmm. presumably if we I gave you an MRI, machina, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, it could be that if a magician waved a magic wand and transformed me into you, you know, maybe there's, there's nothing it's like to be you, you, you know, you have no experience of the outside world. There's no way to know for sure. I mean, for all you know, you could be the only conscious entity in the whole universe. Like everything else is just, you know, um, dead matter that's, yeah. you know, talking, walking, doing all this stuff, but not feeling anything. Truman Show to the nth degree. Yes. Where they're not yes. even people. Uh, right, exactly. Or, or the Matrix, but you're the only one. Right, right. I mean, stuff. so you, these ideas are called solipsism typically, and there's different right. levels of solipsism. I mean, one is that um, I could be dreaming right now. And of course, that that happens every night. But when you're dreaming, there never really was another person there to begin with, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure I'm not dreaming right now. You know, I'm pretty sure you're really here. That you yep. know, there there really is a person across the table from me. Now the question is just what it's like to be that person. Sure. Yeah. So this gets us um, into the philosophical zombie thought experiment, which is also something uh, that comes from David Chalmers. Mm-hmm. So David Chalmers asked, "Is it conceivable in principle?" That there could be these people who their behavior is just like yours, um, their brains are you know practically ident- identical to yours, but there's nothing that it's like to be these people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this would be a philosophical zombie, and I want to make it clear, you know, it's not that he's actually saying that there are people who are zombies. Right. Just like, is this possible it's in a principle? Thought experiment. It's a thought experiment. Yeah. I mean, another way to look at it is like, you know, if we travel to another planet, we found an alien civilization. They have language. They have culture. They have art. But is it conceivable that there's nothing that's like to be these aliens, even though they have all these things that humans have? Yeah, it's just the it's just a continuation of the complexity of behavior. It's like if like if we took if we got back to the conversation of which species are not conscious, like if we said like a fly is not conscious, which I think I believe is the case. If if the complexity of the behavior of a fly just got to that level of uh, that kind of a civilization yet retained a lack of consciousness somehow. Yes. Is that even possible? <laughs> right, right. So people's intuitions are very divided on this. So some mm-hmm. people hear this and they think, yeah, that's true. It, it really could be that way, you know? Mm-hmm. And other people hear this and they just, it, it's not even coherent to them. You know, like I think Dan- Daniel Dennett, who's a very famous philosopher of mine, he, he's one of these people who I, I think to him, this this idea just doesn't even seem conceivable. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, you know, it, it seems conceivable, uh, at least in principle, that you could have, um, you know, some system or... Um, you know, some some person who is, you know, behaving this way and, you know, has the same sort of brain, uh, but there, there's nothing that's like to be them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this brings up a different kind of dualism. So before we talked about substance dualism, uh, that the, the brain is a different substance from the body. Uh, or the mind. Um, yeah, yeah, excuse yeah. me. The, the mind is a different substance than the body. Exactly. So uh, property dualism is something different. It's saying that Okay, you know, everything that exists is matter, but matter has physical properties and has mental properties. And a great thought experiment to demonstrate why we may need to accept property dualism is called Mary's Room. So this was the philosopher Frank Jackson. He um, came up with this thought experiment that you have this scientist named Mary, and she knows everything there is to know about color perception, okay? So she knows everything there is to know about the physics of light, electromagnetic radiation. She knows everything there is to know about optics. She knows every fact about um, color perception. You know, you have red cones, blue cones in the retina. You know how the photon of light gets transduced into a nerve impulse. But the catch is she lives in a black and white room. She's lived in this room her whole life. All information is fed to her on a black and white television monitor, and she's never actually seen color. Mm-hmm. And so now the question is... Um, Who knows more about color? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the idea is, you know, say for whatever reason, um, she finally gets to leave this room one day, and she goes outside into, you know, the world, and she sees all these colors. And she's never seen, like, she's never seen red before. So then uh, he asks, does Mary learn something new? So what do you think? Does she learn something new? Yes. Yeah. So I, I would agree. It seems that she does learn something. 
But if you reach this conclusion, then you're essentially uh, a property dualist because you're saying that there, there are physical properties and there are mental properties. Mm-hmm. And if the world is 100% physical properties, then it wouldn't make any sense to say that she learns something new when she sees the redness of red. So the redness of red, that would be an example of qualia, okay? The, just the subjective okay, components the of, of sensory to, sensations. Yeah, you know, like, and, you know, like the sweetness of sweet would be another one. Mm-hmm. You, you could know mm-hmm. everything there is to know about sugar or sucrose. How it interacts you know? with the taste yeah, buds. And yeah, the, yeah. The, but you could have no, you could still have no idea what the sweetness of sweet is. Right. Yeah. Right. So this takes us um, into panpsychism, which is the other thing I wanted to talk about. So uh, panpsychism says... Um, you know, going along with this idea that there are physical and mental properties, like everything in the universe has some mental properties. Okay. Okay. And it's kind of like everything is conscious to some extent. IIT is basically built on panpsychism. So, you know, a lot of people, when they develop a theory of consciousness, they start with the brain and then they ask, well, what kind of brain activity could give rise to consciousness? IIT is great because it takes it the other way around. It starts with consciousness. It just accepts consciousness as fundamental. And then it looks at different features of consciousness and asks, okay, what kind of system would be compatible with these features? So one feature is integration. Okay, so in IIT theory, this is called um, the axiom of integration. Um, You know, you see a ball moving through the air, you're aware of its shape, its color, its motion, but you're never aware of each of those separately. You know, you're aware of them all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get to integrate information, the fact that, you know, these percepts are, are integrated together. But the thing that troubles many people about IIT is it says that a lot of other systems have to also be conscious. And um, I don't know if I said this at the beginning, so it actually gives an exact number called phi that quantifies the consciousness of the system. Now, in practice, this can't be computed for anything that's more than, say, like a network with 12 elements or 12 neurons. Um, The the math gets complicated really quickly the Mm -hmm. the more elements you add. But in theory, you could actually quantify um, consciousness using this number. And, you know, people are really disturbed by the fact that the consciousness of a lot of systems isn't zero, you know, even if they're, you know, what we would consider to be inanimate uh, matter. To give the simplest example, um, so, you know, we all know that inside atoms, there's protons and neutrons. Inside those protons and neutrons, there are these subatomic particles called quarks, okay? So a proton has three quarks, and the proton is more than the sum of its parts, right? So those three quarks, they integrate some information to become a proton. So does that mean that the proton has some, you know, like infinitesimal degree of consciousness? Mm -hmm. A lot of people, they pull the brakes right there. They say, wait a minute, you're saying a proton is conscious. I'm calling BS on this. This can't be right. Right. Okay. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's it's troubling. But um, if we accept consciousness as fundamental, you know, the way I like to think about is kind of like gravitation. So uh, we all accept that gravitation is just a fundamental aspect of the universe. Mm -hmm. And there's different ways of thinking about it. There's Newtonian gravitation. There's, you know, Einstein's uh, theory of relativity. But, uh, you know, anyone who's taken high school physics, they just accept that every bit of matter is attracted to every bit of every other bit of matter in the universe. Right. Right. Now, this only makes a practical difference for really, really large chunks of matter, you know, like, you know, the, the earth, the sun, the moon. But technically, you know, like uh, we have a gravitational pull and we're sure. gravitationally attracted to each other. As, it even do, gets, as do yeah, atoms and molecules. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it even gets weirder than that. You know, like this speck of dust floating in the air is gravitationally attracted to, you know, like a molecule of nitrogen on Pluto or even in another galaxy. I mean, we're mm-hmm. talking about forces that are so small you could never measure them. They're mm-hmm. just like... Well, infant- you could calculate them. Yeah, yeah you, you, could, you, could, you... you could calculate them just like you can calculate the phi of a proton, right? right. Or the phi of... You know, you know, like a really simple it's beyond system. negligible. But it's beyond negligible. Negligible exactly. to the nth degree. Yeah. Exactly. So I think this is how we need to start thinking about consciousness. Interesting. A, we need to accept it as just a fundamental feature of the universe, the same way we do gravitation. Of course, these are going to be mental rather than physical properties, but you know, we have to just accept it. And then we have to say, okay, you know, it could be that everything has experience, but that experience is so trivial that, you know, just like uh, you know, with the solar system, you don't get a substantial amount of gravitation until you build something up to like a moon or a planet. You don't get substantial experience until you have a network that's really complicated, like the brain. So that doesn't mean we have to feel guilty, you know, every time like, you know, there's like a little speck of dust and we somehow, you know, like flick it in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these things that only integrate trivial amounts of, of information, they, they don't have, you know, any kind of experience that should be compared to our experience. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
Interesting. So it's it's not it's not as top down as it initially sounds. Because when when I hear a lot of people argue consciousness first, they're usually they're coming from a from a point of quantum spirituality, and it's like ah, a yeah. Deepak Chopra type, yeah. and he's like, you create reality, and consciousness creates reality, and so that's what I roll my eyes at. But yeah, what, well, there, the there's, there's that just, stuff too, but we don't yeah. actually have to, to take that view. Because because yeah. you bring up a good point, we we do take gravitation as being inherent in in the universe or in space time, and and uh, I get. I guess I can't really off the top of my head think of a, a, a valid counter argument to why we can't consider consciousness as fundamental in that way. Exactly. In a way that's similarly bottom up. Exactly. Exactly. Know? I mean, um, you know, nobody sits around and thinks, oh, gosh, why does gravitation exist? It's so confusing, you know? Right. Well, um, I do. Uh, <laughs> I do. Yeah, well, okay. So, well, okay. To yeah. be fair, like people have. But, and you physicists know, they, do. But when they, when they yeah. come up with a reason for it, they just accept it as a feature of the universe. You know, there's four fundamental interactions. There's gravitation, electromagnetism, right. and then there's a strong and a weak nuclear force. And right. we just take it. We just accept it that those forces exist. Uh, we don't really try to bother asking another why question because at some point it just becomes right. futile to ask more why questions. Although, you know? although I being on the internet, I get my fair share of uh, I get sort of a window into the, these small communities of people, and there actually is a community of people that that claim gravity does not exist and that all of its uh, effects can be explained with the yeah. with the uh, with the electromagnetic force. Yeah, well, it's I, I'm the sure universe. It's really interesting. <laughs> I, I'm sure you can find someone who thinks anything if you look hard enough. Uh, enough, to, to be yeah. completely fair, there is this idea of unification of forces. I mean, now we're just getting into mm -hmm. physics, right? But at the Big Bang, there was only one force, and then they branched off into right. other forces. And just like yeah. we've unified electri electricity and magnetism as the electromagnetic force, in theory, um, gravitation and electromagnetism would be unified at some point. But, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's not what they're talking about, so... Yeah, but 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 it does it does bring up the idea that you know we we don't fully understand gravity. We don't have quantum gravity. We don't have a quantum field theory for gravity. So we don't have all the answers about gravity, and we don't have all the answers about consciousness either. So right. who knows? Maybe they're in bed together. <laughs> yeah, but um, that would be fascinating actually. If if advancements in theoretical physics or in like early universe cosmology and that sort of stuff brought about such fundamental. Uh, knowledge that it had application in something like consciousness. I that mean, would be that would, would be interesting. I kind of doubt that that's the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you know to make to solve the hard problem, we need to make philosophical progress more so than we need to make scientific progress. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think this is something that a lot of people hope. You know, they look at these things like quantum physics, and they hope that something from quantum physics will under will inform our understanding of consciousness. And like you say, you know, there's a lot of BS there, you know, trying to link consciousness to quantum physics. Most um, of it is, yeah. is total BS. Yeah, and yeah. Pe people have come up with some very, very elaborate theories. So the most elaborate one is um, orchestrated objective reduction. So this mm -hmm. was um, the physicist Roger Penrose and uh, St Stuart Hameroff, who's an anesthesiologist. They came up with this idea that uh, consciousness is due to microtubules. So microtubules, you know, they're these protein filaments and actually in every cell, but... You know, neurons especially have them, and they hypothesize that each of the little tubulin proteins, which is like the, the Lego block in the microtubule, um, each of those is kind of like a switch in a computer. And, you know, they can have an electron like in one subunit or another subunit, and they hypothesize that, okay, maybe actually the microtubule skeleton, that's like the brain or the nervous system inside the nervous system. Like each neuron has its own nervous system and the microtubules are doing some kind of computation. Okay, that's, that's very, very speculative. I mean, I'm, I'm happy that people are thinking about, it. you know, there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with thinking outside the box and exploring these ideas. And who knows, maybe microtubules are more important than we think. But then they take it so much further. So um, uh, without getting into too much quantum physics, you know, in quantum physics, you can have superposition. So you can have a particle that's in two places at once, mm -hmm. essentially. And so you can have the electron that's actually in both of these um, tubulin subunits at once. And then they just start, you know, going way overboard, you know, trying to say like, you know, this, all this quantum stuff explains consciousness and it's very hand wavy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, these, these are very bright guys. I'm not trying to, you know, like yeah. totally... Um, Totally just them. Yeah, yeah. Pen, yeah. Penrose did a bunch of stuff, uh, other stuff too, right? That exactly. No, I mean, Pen, yeah, Penrose was one of Stephen Hawking's mentors, and he's, yeah. he's obviously, you know, much smarter than I am. But some people, they they think about this in a in a very strange way that's not so empirical. It's like, yeah, I, I can come up with a lot of, you know, interesting frameworks for thinking about consciousness, but, you know, mm -hmm. which one 
uh, is really supported by mm -hmm. evidence and which one you know makes falsifiable predictions. Mm -hmm. IIT, it makes a lot of false fa falsifiable predictions. So it could actually tell you in theory, you know, exactly how many nerve fibers in the corpus callosum, uh, the white matter that connects the two cerebral hemispheres, how many nerve fibers would you have to cut before the stream of consciousness suddenly breaks into two? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know any other theories of consciousness that make such specific falsifiable predictions. Okay. Yeah. Going back to you, I, I want to ask about um, artificial consciousness. Sure. What, uh, how far away we are from generating it and how that might impact our study of our own consciousness. What we could, you know, what, what, what will we learn from that? Sure. I mean, I see no reason why artificial consciousness couldn't exist. Maybe it already exists. I mean, according mm -hmm. to IIT, of course, we have some experience to every system. Um, but if we're talking about experience that's computable, uh, comparable to human experience, uh, yeah, so probably not yet, but in the near future, it's it's certainly possible. And here we get into, you know, kind of a, an ethical quandary because we need to ask, when is it okay to pull the plug on a computer? You know, if mm -hmm. we have human level artificial intelligence, and if we have some reason to believe that this artificial intelligence actually is conscious, then it's like murder to, to pull the plug on it. I think so. Yeah. 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 Mm hmm what what can we learn i mean what can we learn about the way an artificial system processes information that can parallel like will there be parallels to the brain or what can we learn about the way the brain works from developing a completely different system would we would we model the brain or would we do you know what are what are the what is a totally different way that it might process information yeah so we are going to model the brain that's what we're already doing okay. so all these huge leaps in artificial intelligence you've been hearing about these are uh, because of artificial neural networks. So the idea is rather than just having uh, a computer program that's you know very rigid and already told what to do, you let the computer learn. You have these artificial units which are analogous to neurons in the brain, okay? And the connections between these units, they're like synapses in the brain, so the weight changes and the efficacy of one unit to affect the other unit is changed as a result of learning. And what people have done recently is they've had this concept called deep learning. It's a big buzzword. I'm sure your listeners have heard of it. So deep learning, you have multiple layers to this network. So you have an input layer, then you have several hidden layers, and then you have an output layer. And there's all kinds of stuff going on in the hidden layers. Um, a lot of times we don't really even know what's going on. That's why it's so hard to understand artificial intelligence sometimes. But this has enabled these big leaps in AI. Is there another way to do um, this kind of computation? Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's just fascinating. I, I, I can't wait to see where we go with yeah. AI. I just think we're going to learn so much. And I don't know. I mean, is there, is there, do you foresee an ap apocalyptic scenario or a, or a, or a not? There or, are very dark places where this could go, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, um, I, I like AI, first of all, I should say that. I mm -hmm. think it's going to um, make human life more livable. We don't have to do all these tedious tasks. And you know, the irony is for all of human history, right? We've dreamed of this world where we don't have to do work. Right. You know, this has been kind of like this, you know, almost like the, the end goal of civilization. Mm -hmm. And now we're almost there. And because we're not, we're not prepared for it culturally, it's going to be a bad thing instead of a good thing. So mm. a lot of jobs are being taken away by automation. You know, that's, that's just a fact. And, um, you know, if you consider, for example, um, truck drivers. So truck driving is a huge, huge job. Um, and all those jobs are going to disappear in, you know, five, 10 years max because there's mm -hmm. going to be, um, self-driving trucks. Uh, I think, you know, in principle, it's a good thing because, uh, you have a lot of fatalities on the road. Uh, humans are just bad drivers, period. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. Your, your reflexes are nothing compared to a computer, mm -hmm. right? So automation is going to start taking these jobs. You're also going to have trucks that can just drive for 24 hours, right? No right. one has to sleep. Yeah. You can daisy chain them together. So they're more aerodynamic, mm -hmm. right? But it is going to be something we have to think about. Like, what do we do with these, these truck drivers? You know, they've, many of them have spent their whole lives as truck drivers. That's what they do for a living. Mm -hmm. um, it's not really realistic to say we're going to retrain these people as, as software engineers. Certainly right, not, right. not all or most of them, right? And so, you know, people have floated these ideas like um, universal basic income. You know, you basically, yes. like, you have a stipend that's paid to, to everyone. That's right, yeah. Um, or one way of thinking about it. Um, I think it's um, Andrew Yang who's running in the primary on this platform. He's saying, you know, like everyone in the U.S., it's, it's like imagine the U.S. as a company, you know, like every citizen is a shareholder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like um, with, a, with a stock, you get paid dividends when the company has some profits, when the U.S. economy has 
you know, some, some growth, you get paid a dividend, you get paid a stipend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually, and this isn't, I should emphasize, this is not just um, blue collar jobs, like white collar jobs are also going to start disappearing. Uh, so surgeons may all soon be robots. Um, radiologists right. are going to disappear because AI is way better at diagnosing lung cancer than human beings are. Mm -hmm. There's certain medical professions that uh, medical students are staying away from. I mean, most of them are still safe, but my point is it's not just, you know, the blue collar jobs. Right. Um, in we law, don't know in 50 years where it'll be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like in law, a lot of jobs are um, being you know, largely taken over by automation. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is if you're a lawyer, a lot of what you do is you have to read through these really long documents and find certain information and uh, computers are much better at doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it, I like what you said about uh, it's 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 merely a cultural barrier here that our culture or society is not ready for it, that 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 the technology is advancing quicker than our cultural awareness or our societal yes. awareness. Yes. I mean, definitely the way the economy is structured has to change dramatically of course, and yeah. has to value the populace yeah. in a way that it doesn't currently. But um, yeah, that would that that would be the utopia there. We'll see if we can if we can accept it, if we can yeah. figure out a way yeah. to meet our own reward, so to speak. Um, yeah, that's why we, yeah, I want to get everybody on board with the science here first and foremost. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, I, I, I definitely learned a lot here. I, I still, I, I, I had that one question that I just really wanted an answer for, uh, but it sounds like with, with your, with the, with IIT, if you're bestowing consciousness on almost every system, you may not have, have an answer for it, but I want to know what animals are conscious and which are not. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, we we should come up with a framework in which we can say, you know, it, right. it's, it's ethical to treat animals this way, and it's not ethical to treat. That's right, because we kill bugs. Nobody way. gets arrested for that. Yeah, we, we we kill bugs. I mean, you know, factory farming is the bigger concern today, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we put these mammals who almost certainly have uh, very similar experience right. to our own, and we put them through what's almost like a, like torture chambers. Exactly. You know? So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. The the line is clearly prior to well any mammal i think it's probably kind of yes, or yes. I, I think one a safe thing to say is that anything that displays emotional behavior yes must be conscious don't you think um i actually i don't know about that last part i mean yeah i agree with you that you know these animals that we eat uh most of them are almost certainly conscious but i don't know that you need to have emotion i don't know that displaying emotion is proof of consciousness i mean uh emotions are kind of just like directions that you know, flavor our behavior and our cognition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of reflexes are kind of like angry reflexes, Appear you know? As such, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, you can like you can punch someone out of just, you know, pure reflex, right? If you're mm -hmm. if you're trained to do that and someone attacks you. And uh, you know, sort of like the the primal rage that we feel when we're angry, it's not necessarily something that I'd say comes from consciousness. You know, it's like the James Lang theory of emotion, which says, um, you know, first, uh Emotion is this arousal in your body. And when psychologists talk about arousal, we're not just talking about sexual arousal. We're talking about physiological changes in the body. Mm -hmm. And uh, so first you have this arousal and then your brain interprets this as I am sad. I am angry. I am happy. Okay. And that, you know, that physiological arousal, there doesn't have to be consciousness there. Mm -hmm. So actually I would say, no, we don't have to necessarily tie emotion to to consciousness interesting well not necessarily tie it but that it that it seems to be evidence of it anyways right right yeah I, I wouldn't necessarily go down that path i mean interesting. you know there are many conscious experiences you can have that don't have any emotion um you know you can imagine the conscious experience of just staring at a red screen you know like mm -hmm. a pure red screen and that's qualia you know that's right. a conscious experience the redness of red and you can even imagine a system that only experiences that, has no other experience whatsoever, right? Mm -hmm. And it may have no emotion, but there's something that it's like to be that system. It's just like seeing red all day, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, of course, it would have to see some other colors because that's, you know, that's part of IIT, right? You have, you have to have many different states to discriminate from. Dude, so dude, if, red, yeah. if red were the only color it could see, then that would become meaningless. But right. um, another thing, which is, you know, kind of puzzling is we often say that you know like the smartest animals those are the ones that we need to protect but uh you know like a conscious experience of pain you don't really need any intelligence to experience pain right mm -hmm. i mean you can imagine an animal or a system that only feels you know physical pain or physical pleasure and it you know it can't do language or any of these other things it, it can't even do you know the kinds of simple cognitive tasks that animals can do but it can feel pain 
So we need to really consider that and think about is, is intelligence really so important um, in our, our ethics of how we treat animals? That's right. And, and how do we know what feels pain? You know, yes, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it, go, I, I use bugs as an example because it's it's the it's the biggest thing that I have ever killed. You know what I mean? Sure. I, sure. I, I have killed bugs yeah. and sometimes I kill them and I feel bad <laughs> I'm yeah. like this. I, this might be wrong. Yeah, but you can't be in my house. Yeah, I'm my, sorry. Yeah, my my yeah. wife never kills insects. She's I, just like, yeah, not not even cockroaches. Yeah. She hates cockroaches, but she doesn't want to kill them. I know yeah. people like that, yeah. and I'm like, you're. Yeah. I I think you might be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I might be wrong. Yeah, but I hate bugs. You know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's just it's interesting as a thought experiment for myself. You know, like because bacteria we kill every day by washing our hands with no remorse. That's I right. don't have remorse for yeah. that. So it's it is interesting to you know these slippery slopes here. But it, but if IIT uh, you know is the thing or or you know these uh, frameworks where we're assigning even a proton with some quantifiable amount of consciousness that's that's really that's that's wild mm-hmm. that's wild I need to read up a little more on this stuff I think. yeah yeah but I think you've given me a very good jumping off point here for for some further research I think hopefully for the listeners too so uh, thanks man yeah this has been super duper interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's it's great to be on here, and I'm I'm glad I've given you some good food for thought. All right. Great.